starting our summer series and um, had a lot of thought over the last few weeks about what we might do, and uh, I settled on the parables of Jesus. And so through the summer, uh, we're going to take a different parable each week and just talk about a parable. And I, I like in the summer to do a series that sort of each sermon kind of stands on its own because people kind of come and go and you're not here all the time. And you don't want to think, you know, you missed something or doesn't connect. And so the parables are nice because they stand alone. And uh, the purpose of Jesus' parables is essentially to teach the most personal and the hardest lessons by, by means of parable. And Jesus talked about these, he used these stories in order to engage people in their culture, in their worldview, to place them in the story uh, so that they could see truth in a new way and to uh, shift the way they looked at the world or looked at themselves. One of, the, one of the first parables, or one of the only parables actually found in the Old Testament, not Jesus' parables, but Old Testament parables, is Nathan's parable of the man and the sheep that he told to King David. Does anybody remember that parable when the prophet Nathan talked to King David? And uh, that's in 2 Samuel 12. And Nathan basically comes and he says, you know, there's, this, there's two men in a city. One's rich and he's got all kinds of sheep and everything else and vineyards and everything else. And then there's this poor man who's got one little lamb who he just absolutely loves and he named it and called it Dolly. And, you know, it, he fed it and, you know, gave it a bottle of milk and everything else. And it, and it drank from and, and ate, drank from his cup and lay in his arms and all that stuff. And then a traveler came to town to visit the rich man. And the rich man didn't want to kill any of his own sheep, so he, he, he took the poor man's sheep and slaughtered it, you know, to have for dinner with his guests. And King David, like, loses his mind, right? He's like, who is this guy? I am going to deal with him with justice. And Nathan says, it's you. You know, remember that thing with Bathsheba and, you know, killing her husband and taking his wife for your, yourself? It's you, David. And so that, that's, that's the purpose of a parable. The parable is like, a punch to the gut, okay? And the, and the problem that we have a little bit as we sit in church and talk about Jesus' parables is that they're almost too familiar to us, right? We've heard them all before. We know who the good guy and the bad guy is. We've already decided who we want to be in the parable. And, and so they don't necessarily hit us quite the same way. But they're meant to shock listeners. They're meant to pull the rug out from under our comfortable worldviews. Parables, as Jesus taught them, shift the boundaries that we thought we were playing our little game of life in. Jesus comes along and tells a parable and says, you thought you were playing your life over here, and he just shifts the boundaries. They turn our expectations upside down in order to show us something true about ourselves and to show us something true about God that we're not necessarily comfortable facing. They're meant to disturb Parables are meant to pin the lesson on the nose of the listener so they can't avoid it. And one little rule for you as we go into this series is to realize that virtually every parable of Jesus has at its base one of just two lessons, okay? So as you hear parables or think of the parables of Jesus, they are stories that teach us something about either the outrageous grace of God and just how fundamentally earth-shattering His grace is on the one hand, or they're telling us something about the dangerous and terrifying predicament that we are in, apart from that grace. And often the parable is telling us both of those things. But when you're looking at Jesus' parables, you can just look, and even through the summer, you can look for either the outlandish and outrageous grace of God that Jesus is trying to get across, or the dangerous predicament that we're in. And so because this is the first one of the series... I'm going to start off with kind of an easy parable to understand, okay? Not a lot of imagery and stuff in it. 
but with a most important truth. And because it's my series, I'm going to start off with my favorite parable. And, uh, and it's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Okay, so there's no allegory, there's no imagery, there's nothing. It's, it's literally a Pharisee and a tax collector. You can understand what's going on in this parable. The first question is, why is Jesus teaching this? And it's important for us to understand why Jesus would teach this to people like us. And it starts off in verse 9. He says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. See, this is why it's the easy one. It's helpful that the Bible tells us ahead of time why Jesus was telling the parable. There's no confusion. We're told here that he told the parable because Jesus seemed to find himself regularly in the presence of people who did not understand how total and complete and how outrageous the grace of God is. He was surrounded by people in their flesh that wanted to justify themselves. He was surrounded by people that wanted to be righteous on their own merit and and were offended as those people that Jesus is talking to. We are offended by the assessment, any assessment of us, that excludes or overlooks our merits. And ultimately, we won't acknowledge God as just in His judgment of us, nor will we accept Him as our justifier, the one who declares us just, because we want to take credit for the things that are good in us. And Jesus finds Himself surrounded by these people all the time. So this is why He's telling the parable. He says there's these people who are confident of their own righteousness, and they look down on everybody else, and so I have to tell them a story about their righteousness, or lack thereof, because I seem to be surrounded by these people all the time. And the truth that Jesus is trying to illuminate with this parable is also taught by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3. And I want you to listen to these verses in Romans 3 and then see how the parable that Jesus is, is telling in the story is illuminating what the Apostle Paul is sharing as gospel or as doctrine, sorry, as doctrine or truth about God in Romans 3. Romans 3, 23 to 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our dangerous predicament that we are in and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, and I'll explain that word in a bit, by His blood to be received by faith. That's how we can be saved from the danger that we are in. And this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the outrageous grace. So this is the doctrine, the truth about God and us that this little parable, this little story of Jesus is going to illuminate for us. So let's see how how it works. So Jesus, in order to shock us out of our complacency and our self-righteousness, tells us a story of two men in whom we're meant to find points of identification with so that we can examine ourselves and see if we are in danger or see if we are justified, see whether this story shifts our worldview, if it kind of pulls the rug out from underneath the truth that we felt we knew about ourselves. So Luke 10, 18, 10 to 14 is the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself 
will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. And so what I want to do is go through this and see that in this parable we have two men and we have two prayers and we have two outcomes. And this is how Jesus unpacks these things. First of all, we have two men and we don't have Pharisees today and we don't have tax collectors in the same way that in the same kind of tax collectors that they had here in Jerusalem under Roman occupation. And so to regain some of the identification and some of the cultural impact and some of the shock value of the parable so that we hear the parable again in the ears of the people listening to Jesus, let's consider who these two people might be today. First of all, we have the Pharisee. So Jesus might have said, there was a soccer mom who volunteers at school and she does the 5K run for cancer and she packs lunches for kids who don't have them at school. Or he might have said, there's a businessman who's got his life all together and he's been successful at business and employed many people and he gives to charity and he sits on boards and he volunteers with his time. Or he might have said, there were some well-behaved church kids that grew up and made all the right decisions. They never drank, they never smoked, they married the right girl, they married the right boy, they're bringing their kids to church and they volunteer in ministry. There were some good church people that were at the temple that day. People who can demonstrate they've made a lot of right choices in their life and they do lots of good. They're not arrogant about it, but they do feel pretty good about how they've kept out of sin and that they have no reason for shame. I mean, these are people that certainly are not the kind of people like others. You know, they don't have the kind of shame and guilt that other people should be feeling like that tax collector over here. The Pharisee is like, these people feel right at home in church. They know how church goes. They know the songs. They know that they can pray out loud in the congregation. They're in a small group. They know what fellowship is and how to do it really well. That's the Pharisee. And then there's the tax collector. What a great example that Jesus uses from his culture. It catches everybody off guard and it kind of bends our mind around what's acceptable and what isn't. Because a tax collector in Jesus' time was a perfect combination of successful but also despised. Socially, tax collectors were wealthy because they were collecting taxes for the Romans. And they skimmed for themselves off of the taxes that they collect. And so they were wealthy, they were middle class, but they were despised. They were dishonest and they profited off poorer people. And so on the one hand, the tax collector was kind of like perhaps the economic 1% that profits from the 99, right? He was like the stockbroker or the CEO or the politician or the lawyer that never cared a lick about God his whole life. They just made themselves rich using a few loopholes along the way that they learned from their country club friends. And they drove their Porsche to the golf club every Sunday morning and they drank with their friends every Sunday afternoon before going home to their boyfriend or girlfriend. Right? They just didn't care about God, just profiting off of their place in society. But the tax collector, on the other hand, also represents people who society would evidently say made bad life choices and are visibly the object of skepticism and scorn. If you saw a tax collector in Jerusalem, you crossed to the other side of the street. Okay? You have to understand that they were considered complicit with the Roman occupying forces. And so they were the people that were visibly the object of scorn. And so at the same time, the tax collector is also the unwed mother that was pregnant far too young and too often. Or the lazy father or the angry drinker who can't hold down a job and is always on social support. The first guy the police check on if there's been a robbery on his street. 
So in other words, the tax collector of the parable is the last person anyone would expect to see in church. If you or, their, or your friends saw them, they would say, why are they in church, those hypocrites? They've had nothing to do with God their whole life. And here's the interesting thing. They would be saying the same things about themselves. These are the people that sometimes find themselves in a church trying to hide in a crowd, and they're asking themselves the same question. Why am I here? I don't know anything about church. I am probably not even wanted in church. But what drew me here? Why am I here today? What has brought me to the temple to talk to God? Was it the argument I had when I got home from work last night that turned into a fight with smashed plates and a bleeding lip? Was it the feeling of shame waking up in someone else's bed again this morning? They are sitting in church wondering, why am I here? That's the tax collector. So you got the Pharisee who's very comfortable at the front of the line. The tax collector stood at a distance wondering, why am I here? I don't have any reason to be here. I don't deserve to be here. Probably nobody wants me here. I have no good reason to show my face at church. But the tax collectors of the world also know that they have tried everything else to change their life and it wasn't working. And so the shock of Jesus' parable can't be lost on us. It is outrageous that the tax collector is at temple pretending like he belongs there. It's perfectly expected of all of Jesus' listeners that the Pharisee would be there. If you ask the crowd what sort of person God accepts into his heaven, the answer would be obvious to them. Right? They don't have the benefit of 2,000 years of reading the Bible and understanding that the Pharisees were often the bad guy. When we read Pharisee, we already know that the Pharisee was the bad guy in the story. Right? But in Jesus' time, when they heard that there was a Pharisee and a tax collector at the temple, there was no doubt in their mind who God accepted. The Pharisee was a hero. The Pharisees were their present-day holiness movement. These were the people that were at prayer meeting. These were the people that were trying to keep temple worship going. These were the people that were trying to promote the church. They were trying to get God in front of everybody and God's name glorified. Everybody saw the Pharisees as being the cream of the church crop. And so there would have been no question if the crowd was asked what sort of person God accepts into his heaven. The answer would have been obvious. Of course, God accepts good people and he rejects bad people. But the shock is that that is nothing at all like what Jesus is teaching. He is now going to yank the rug out from under this idea and turn everything for his listeners upside down because he wants to teach them something. He wants to teach them how outrageous the grace of God is. But he has more set up before he pulls the rug. Okay, he's not done. He's going to set them up even more. Then he's going to yank the rug, right? So now there's two men, there's two prayers. The his audience already thinks he knows where they're going, right? Then the, the pr Pharisee prays. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers and evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. He probably could have gone on, but it's a short parable. And so he focuses, what the, what the Pharisee does is he focuses on what he is not or does not. Right? He says, I thank you that I'm not like these other men. So the Pharisee is comforting himself by reminding himself of the sins he doesn't commit. And he even names some of those other sins that he can safely not identify with. Oh yeah, I'm not a robber, I'm not an evildoer, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not like this tax collector, I'm not like any of those people, God. Just remember, God, when I come to heaven, remember how many people I didn't rob, remember how many people I didn't sleep with, and remember that I'm not a traitor. Let's just focus on all those things that I'm not. There's a lot of bad things that I'm not. Right? That's how he starts praying. And this is a great way for us to avoid confronting the sins that we do commit. Right? He doesn't mention any of those. 
But if our object is only to affirm ourselves, then the Pharisee gives us a great example of how to do it. Just focus only on the sins we don't commit. Make a list even of those sins that we don't commit. And make a habit of not committing those sins. Give yourselves a great list of rules of all the things that you don't do and live by those rules. And as long as we follow those rules, and coincidentally they're the rules that I like to keep because they're the things I don't do, or at least aren't too hard to keep, then if we keep those rules, then we can assure ourselves of qualifying for the prize. That's the Pharisee, right? Look, look at all these things. Look at all these rules I keep that I don't do. So I must be qualified for the prize, God. And this way of praying keeps us from confronting any sins that we actually do do. We don't spend any time thinking about those. Let's just focus on what we don't do. Pharisee doesn't go there. He doesn't go to the sins that he does commit. But then secondly, he not only focuses on the sins he doesn't do, he also focuses only on the obedience he does perform and not the obedience he doesn't. He actually enumerates and he counts out his virtues before God. And it's not even a long list. He says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Right? Look, he's saying first, look at all the bad stuff I don't do. And also, God, look at all the good stuff that I do do. I'm a righteous person. Pay no attention to what's going on over here, but pay attention to these good things that I do. And he even does it with thanks to God. It's a very subtle strategy here that the Pharisee has. He says, I thank you, God, that I'm better than the tax collector. Thank you, God, that I'm a good person, that I can live such a righteous life and qualify in my righteousness before you. But here's the reality. You can see in his prayer that the Pharisee feels no need. The Pharisee asks for nothing. The Pharisee believes he's actually a real prize to God. He's upstanding. Literally, probably upstanding near the front of the temple. He's basically saying, hey God, I'm fine. I'm here at the temple. I'm always here. You know me. I'm at the 10 a.m. service every Sunday. And you can see my checkbook. You know the ministry work I do. I'm the good guy here. The Pharisee feels no need. And he asks nothing from God. That's the first prayer. Now look at the prayer of the tax collector. There's two prayers. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a totally different prayer. Totally different. And what the tax collector actually says here, and this is interesting, is that if you read it in the Greek, what the tax collector actually says here is literally is, God, please propitiate me. Remember I said I'd come back to that word propitiation. The word there is propitiate. It's helaskomai, propitiation. And what is that? What is propitiation? That's kind of a $10 theological word. It's a word that's used even outside of Christianity. Jesus' listeners would have known what propitiation was, especially any Greek or pagan uh, listeners of Jesus. Because propitiation means, in Greek, to satisfy or appease or cause the gods to be reconciled by sacrifice. It points to the fact that in the death of a sacrifice, apart from ourself, there's not only the bearing away of sin, but also there is the diverting of the wrath of God that is due for that sin. So it takes away the sin, but it also deflects or satisfies the wrath that is due for that sin. And that mercy then is possible in place of wrath. That's what propitiation means. It means that the wrath of God is taken away and satisfied by an outside sacrifice. And remember, that's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 3. 
You remember he said redemption that is in Christ Jesus who God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Not by works so that no one can boast, Ephesians 2.9 says. By faith you receive this propitiation. By faith you receive this deflection of the wrath of God. By faith in the sacrifice of Christ Jesus, God has taken action to put forward this means of propitiation. And what the tax collector is perfectly demonstrating and literally saying is saying, God, please propitiate my sin. Have mercy on me. Deflect your wrath. And this is what he's demonstrating in Jesus' parable. The tax collector knows what the Pharisee doesn't. The tax collector knows that propitiation is required to be justified, to be qualified, to be accepted by God. The Pharisee is in this situation. He's Mr. I'm doing all the things right to measure up. He's stuck in his self-deception while the tax collector has realized immediately that unless something outside of myself has solved my problems, then I am in a dangerous predicament to be standing before God. Something has to be done apart from myself or where I stand is dangerous before God. I have no other hope for mercy unless God does something. Mr. I'm doing all the right things to measure up has no clue the danger that he is standing in. The tax collector understands. And so his prayer is, would you? And understand that this is in the context of temple worship. They are literally at the Jewish temple. This is when sacrifices are going on. The tax collector and the Pharisee can see the altar. They're either watching a sacrifice. They can at least see the blood of the sacrifices on the altar that have been going on for over 1,500 years at this point to try to propitiate the wrath of God from the people of Israel. So the Pharisee and the tax collector can see the sacrifice that's required. He's reminded of the fact that sin demands death as payment. And the, t- the, Pharisee, or the tax collector is basically saying, I see the blood, I see the altar, I understand the cost, and what I'm asking you, Lord, is that you propitiate this sin from me, that you would have mercy. He's not appealing to God's better nature, hoping that God will do something because God's a nice guy. But what he's doing is he is laying claim to God's promised solution to this predicament because it's God that put forth Jesus Christ. It's God that put forth this promise. It's God that took action. And so he's not just hoping that God is a nice guy. He's actually laying claim to the promised solution that God has for his sin to propitiate it, to justify him, to qualify him, to be able to call him righteous, not because of him, but because of something outside of himself. The Pharisee, meanwhile, is trying to gather up a whole bunch of items in his list that he thinks will be a credit to him in heaven. Then he can pull them out and put on display for God to accept them. He's going to pull out, hey, remember all those people I didn't kill? Right? Remember all those women I didn't sleep with? Remember that tithe? Remember those checks I wrote? He's, he's trying to gather up all these things that he hopes he can put on display before God. While at the same time, he looks down on this poor tax collector thinking, what has this guy possibly got stored up in his life that's going to qualify him for heaven? Right? He's probably laughing to himself. What's he going to do? Is he just going to hang his head at the gate of heaven and ask for mercy? Yeah. Yeah. That's what he's going to do. And he'll get in. And he'll get in. He'll enter justified. Because for these two men who pray these two ways, there's two different outcomes. There's two different destinations. 
unjustified and justified. It says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector went home justified. The Pharisees left standing in his sin. The Pharisee exalted himself. He wanted credit for his behavior. He wanted to be considered righteous. And he misses out on the justification of God. And the tax collector, the guy who knows he's got no business being in church, right? That he has done nothing that qualifies him for the mercy of God because he humbled himself and just said, God, I need your mercy. He's justified. He's exalted. He's glorified. He's lifted up. His confession of rebellion, his confession of weakness, his humility, the confession of his sin draws him near to God. Or let me put it more plainly as Jesus will in a few other parables. Right? This is the, this is the rug getting yanked now. The crowd... Mind blown. The Pharisee isn't justified. They totally thought that's where Jesus was going. The tax collector is justified. That makes no sense to me. He's just pulled the rug, turned the whole thing upside down. He says it this way in Matthew 5.20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says later on in Matthew, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. He's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes and the Levites and the temple people. He's saying prostitutes are going to go into heaven ahead of you. You not get it? You don't understand God. You don't understand His outrageous grace. You're trying to put all these things in your life together so that God will think you're a good person. And there's nothing wrong with being a soccer mom and there's nothing wrong with being a business person who donates and there's nothing wrong with you know, making good life choices and marrying the right girl and raising up your kids in the church. There's nothing wrong with that. Those are good things. But they do not justify you before God. They are of no credit to you. They will not help you get into heaven. The destination for those that try to justify themselves apart from God is emptiness, far from God. It's hell. The destination for those that humble themselves and recognize that there is nothing in themselves but only the work of Christ on the cross has accomplished what they need will see heaven. Now there's two wrong applications here. Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to live a holy life, right? That's what I just explained. It's okay. It's good to be a soccer mom. Don't take an application from this saying, oh, well, I shouldn't go to church and I, you know, I, I shouldn't pray and I shouldn't tithe and I you know, shouldn't do any of the good things that church people do. No, no, no. Those are good things to do but they're not the source of your righteousness. There's a second wrong application that God doesn't want, that God wants you to keep on sinning, right, in Matthew 21. So the the answer is also not, oh, I should be like the tax collector then, right? Like like I should be a despicable person. I should make bad life choices, right? So So that God welcomes me in my sinfulness. That's not the application that Jesus is making. Right? In, in Matthew 21, Jesus tells another parable about two sons who were asked to work in the field. And it's the son who did as the father asked that was considered the good son. Or Paul says in Romans 6, shall we go on sinning so God's grace may increase? By no means. So the parable is not to encourage us to act like sinners, nor is the parable to say it's wrong to do good. That would be the wrong application. The right way to apply this parable is not to try to put yourself entirely in the shoes of one or the other. The parable is about the outrageous grace of God and how to access it. The parable is for all of us. We are all partly the Pharisee and partly the tax collector. 
right? If you latch on to that one time that you were humble and just identify with the tax collector and then lean back in your seat right now and say, oh yeah, I remember that time when I was sorry for my sin and I was humble and so I'm the tax collector and so I'm okay. And if you just lean back in your seat now and think that the parable's not for you, then you're missing the application because we're all partly the tax collector and we're all partly the Pharisee. The lesson here is that there are areas in our life where we need to humble ourselves before God. If we just lean back in ease, then the lesson is, thinking the lesson is meant for others, then we're just guilty of doing exactly what the Pharisee is is doing, dwelling on our own virtue and ignoring our vices. We're guilty of pumping up our righteousness and avoiding our sinfulness. So the lesson is not to determine, am I completely the Pharisee or completely the tax collector? The lesson is to determine where and when am I like the Pharisee and how can I submit that portion of myself to God the way the tax collector did? Where and when am I just striving in my own righteousness or thinking that I'm qualifying myself before God? And how do I submit that arrogance and that pride to God the same way the tax collector did? Where am I seeking to justify myself and hide my sin rather than cherishing the outrageous grace of God that will forgive me my sin? Have you ever asked asked God to pardon you the way the tax collector did? Just forget the person that you're thinking of in your mind or who you think the Pharisee is. Forget about the person who's sitting beside you. Just think about yourself for a minute. Have you approached God the way the tax collector has? Through the merciful provision of the sacrifice of Jesus and nothing else? Or are you seeking a righteousness like the Pharisee has built on your own moral achievement and behavior? Because some people have never made this discovery that that Jesus is uncovering here in this parable. They've never understood the outrageous grace of God. They feel guilty, but they don't know how to deal with it. And so they bury it under religious behavior, or they find a church with a group of people that affirm them and cheer them up every Sunday. But that doesn't ultimately deal with their sin and their guilt. And so they go Sunday by Sunday still feeling guilty because they've never actually dealt with it. They've just buried it under religion. And our goal, my goal, is not to send you out here feeling good when you're not, but to give you the best news you've ever heard. You feel guilty because you're a sinner. You are a worse sinner than you believed yourself to be, but you are also more loved than you can imagine you are. Because the grace of God is outrageous, and it prefers a humble sinner to a self-righteous saint. That's what Jesus is teaching. He's trying to show them that the grace of God can overcome any any obstacle that they can imagine. As scornful and despised as the tax collector is, the grace of God is upon him. When you come into church, sin is not your most dangerous condition. Sin doesn't pose a difficulty for God. There is a solution for your sin. God has an answer for your sin, whatever it is. And it's the best possible answer, the most powerful possible solution. God's own Son has gone to the cross and died for your sin to bear your shame. And He was raised again three days later in victory over sin and death so that its threat against you is finished. When you walk into church, sin is not your most dangerous problem. God has an answer for sin. There is no longer any condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But what there is no solution for, what I cannot help you with, is pride, in which you will not lay down your rebellion and confess that you are a sinner. Confess that your hope is not in Jesus alone, but that you are somehow better than other people 
or better in yourself. Your hope is somehow that you have done enough. Your hope is that God will somehow only see the parts that you want Him to see and not the parts you don't. That is not the Gospel. That's just you trying to qualify yourself for heaven without humbling yourself before God and trusting Jesus rather than yourself. When you come into church, sin is not your most dangerous problem. Pride is. God has an answer to deal with sin for eternity. And the only thing that can hold you back from that is your rebellion and your refusal to confess it. What will you do at the gates of heaven? Will you argue your case with Jesus? That all your church going and your Bible reading and your carefulness to not smoke or drink or watch the wrong kind of movie is a good reason that you qualify for heaven? Will you point out some other poor person farther down the line from you and say, at least I wasn't as bad as him. I should get in. I don't know where the line is, but it's behind me. Right? I've done enough to get in. You're going to cut it off at some point because, I mean, Hitler shouldn't get in. We know that. Right? That prostitute shouldn't get in. That girl who slept around town, she shouldn't get in. You know, that, that lawyer who cheated everybody, he shouldn't get in. But the line's behind me, right? Because I'm not that bad. Is that the argument you're going to make? You're going to point at somebody else and just say, I did better than them? Or are you just going to hang your head like this tax collector did and ask for mercy? You should. Because no one else will enter heaven except those that do that that pray as the tax collector did. And today's that day. Today's the day you can humble yourself like the tax collector and receive God's pardon. And you can go out from this place justified, qualified, a new creation in Christ Jesus to treasure Him forever. You see how outrageous this parable is? It's crazy talk. The town slut's going to get into heaven before me? That business guy who cheated is going to get into heaven before me? It's crazy. But the grace of God is outrageous. It's outlandish. It's beyond what you can expect. Your sin is not a problem to God. Sin is not the problem. You need forgiveness. And you can have it. Let's pray.